Welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, and doers in the real estate industry. For a couple of years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our Altos Research Market video series weekly. With our new Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add some context to the discussion about, about what's happening in, in the market from the leaders in the industry. Every week, Altos tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand. We analyze all the changes in that data and make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. It's been so hot, so competitive, and now suddenly the, the landscape is changing. So uh, if you're in the the business that, and you need to communicate about the data, the changing data to your buyers and sellers, then visit altosresearch.com and book time with our team, free consultation. And, and we can talk about the local data in your market and how you use the data in your business. Okay, so without further ado, let, let me introduce my guest today, Mike Green. Mike is the co-founder, CEO of ResiShares. Mike's fascination with the housing market began with a guest lecture in his undergrad economics class by Nobel-winning economist Robert Schiller. The lecture focused on Schiller's home price indices, which first drew attention to the possibility of liquid, geographically-based investment prod, pro, products. And we're going to talk about Schiller today because I have some good Schiller stories. Over the past 15 years, Mike has worked as a trader at, at Bocage Capital, later at House Canary, where he witnessed the emergence of the single family rental ecosystem. And that convinced him that the, the world is ready for, to see Schiller's challenge of how do you really do liquid investment products in real estate? Challenge accepted. So Mike is now the founder and CEO of ResiShares, a real estate investment fund with a unique technology edge and an innovative approach to, to finding the best investment opportunities. So Mike, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. This is going to, this is going to be like that, that scene in the spies like us with us calling each other by the same first name the whole time, but I That's think right. I figured it out. Yeah. Roger, Roger. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, like I said, I, I like, I have some good Bob Schiller stories, so I'm interested in. I in, have I'm, none. I was literally one of 40 kids in this, you know, classroom sitting in the back, taking my notes as like a freshman or sophomore. So i this is a one-way admiration society. He definitely doesn't know who I am, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. I was the one class from, you know, my my blurry undergrad years where I said, "Wow, this guy's onto something. He's pretty smart." He's onto something, and and uh, he sure was, and and did some really really neat stuff. Irrational exuberance is exactly. is terrific work. Okay, so let's start though. Tell us about Resi Shares, mm -hmm. um, why it's cool, what what you're doing. Absolutely. So. It, yeah, I, I think your your intro summed it up nicely. What our what our long term vision is, which is to create an opportunity for more people to gain exposure to the equity piece of the housing market and have that kind of more broadly investable, tradable, etc. Which I think just solves a tremendous number of social and financial problems. And that's all well and good, but in the meantime, you have to get there. And this is a big asset class, and it is it, it just big in every dimension. So I think what's what's somewhat unique about us is that we are 
we have these kind of grandiose prop tech visions, but I think we're very realistic or hopefully realistic about how long and hard the slog is gonna to be to achieve that vision. So our, our path to market has been very non-traditional. We, we did not go out and raise a bunch of VC money and kind of build a website or a trading game or something to get customer interest and, and kind of live round to round. We were always somewhat afraid of that, that VC ecosystem. So instead we are applying what we do. You, you mentioned this idea of a unique way of buying real estate and trying to find out performance opportunities to the current problem at hand, which is now there are a lot of institutional investors who are trying to get a piece of this business and limited supply of folks who, who know how to do it. And we were, uh, we're fortunate enough to have some, some capital partners who believe in both the short and long-term visions and believe that we can help them kind of achieve alpha in their real estate returns and single family. So we are working on doing that for them, making some good investment decisions over the next couple of years and eventually finding a way to parlay that into our long-term goals. So you're buying houses. We're buying houses. That was a much, that's a much clearer way of explaining. We're buying houses. That's what we're yep. doing. Yep. So you're buying houses and you're buying houses for institutional individual investors? We do have a, a small fund for individual investors that is closed now. <laughs> so uh -huh. definitely not out there pitching it. Uh -huh. um, that, but predominantly we're working in partnership with institutions. Got it. And in the, you, you mentioned solving social and financial problems as part of that. Sure. Tell me about how, how buying homes for institutional investors help solve social and financial problems. It most certainly doesn't except to the extent that it allows us to achieve those kind of long-term objectives of increasing liquidity and accessibility. Okay. So look, in the long run, the vision is we open up kind of secondary trading into some series of vehicles that consolidates homes at a level of abstraction that people understand. And what I mean by that specifically is you might be at a backyard barbecue and folks probably aren't going to say, I think the Case Shiller 20 is going to go up 6% next year. National home price, the, the Freddie Mac index, is, no one's talking about national home prices. Similarly, while you certainly may be talking about your neighbor's house down the street that just sold for a bunch of money and what that you know print does to, to kind of support the value of your own home, you're not saying, I want to buy this or that house as an investment necessarily. That's a level of, of specificity that people, I think, unless they're in the business, probably don't want to take on. And, and, and not to mention, like, it's a job. Operating a house is, is not easy. Ask me how I know. What you might hear someone say though, and, and you know, living in, in the Bay Area over the past almost 20 years now, I heard this conversation a lot because the, the arm got so wide. You might hear people saying, everyone's moving to Dallas. Everyone's moving to Austin. Everyone's moving to Denver. Everyone's moving to Seattle. That market's hot. How do I get involved with that? So what we would love to do is find a way to make it so that somebody can actually express that view. And, and, and by someone, I mean, make that as broadly accessible as possible. In an ideal world where we have a series of publicly traded REITs that you can go into your Fidelity account or your Schwab account and just click a button. I think that's obviously a nice North Star to have. We also understand, again, how long that path is going to be to get there. But there are lots of opportunities, intermediate steps kind of along the way. In the meantime, though, again, the question is how to get there. And we wanted to create a business that had a lot of I guess, commercial optionality along the way, which is to say a real business that tries to make money for people along the way. 
Yeah. Um, and that's that kind of drew us to partnering with with kind of alpha seeking institutions because those are the folks that are most interested in, in kind of buying this stuff right now. Got it. So so the vision is that, you know, I as a as an individual or investors in general, we we need to be able to say like like I, I appreciate that Austin is a great market. I live in San Francisco and and need to be able to have exposure to Austin. And and therefore a vehicle like a publicly traded REIT would be like, here's the Resi shares Austin REIT. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that ultimately the vision what we what we'll see? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that solves some financial problems. And when you talk about social problems, because we get this question a lot, like aren't you just kind of exacerbating the, the lack of supply? And I would contend that I'm agnostic to whether somebody buys or rents their home as long as they live in one. The only thing that exacerbates lack, lack of supply is a lack of building. I think it is probably, especially in a world with, that, we, that we now inhabit, unrealistic to assume that everybody is going to want to take most of their net worth and stick it in their house. Um, I think 2008 taught us that that's probably not prudent. For most folks, people forget those lessons. And now everyone's saying the opposite. Oh, I need to buy a house. I need to buy a house. It's like, well, sure, it's because it's been going up. <laughs> if it starts going down, we have the opposite problem. And that's really where this idea was hatched in 2010-ish. So I think the idea of fractional ownership of real estate is a, is a great one. There are a lot of companies out there trying to fractionalize individual homes. There are a variety of reasons we don't love that business model. So we're just trying to offer fractional ownership and something a bit more diversified and a bit more understandable by the average person. That's great. Okay. So as an investment vehicle, it gives me exposure to a region in a region of housing and, and then allows me to bet on the future of that region. Would I be able to short it? It depends where we go, right? In, okay. in the example I just gave you, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, I, I'm too much of a realist, I think, to just assume that that's definitely going to happen next week. Right. But that is absolutely the goal. That's the part goal of the vision. Absolutely, to create two-way liquidity for the same exact reason, because I think it creates hedge opportunities. And I think it, and this gets back to you know what what inspired the whole idea back in 1998, whatever it was. This was Schiller's idea too, right? As he tried to create that, he did create those those futures based on his index, the trade on the CME. And there are a variety of challenges I think that he that he learned the hard way that you know are inherent to the futures in the derivatives market. But the idea was to effectively smooth out the transfer of asset exposure from home from people who are long housing, i.e. homeowners, yep. to people who are short housing, i.e. tenants, right? Make it so that I don't have to sell my house that I live in to the next person because I still want to live in that house and they might not have enough money to buy that house. But maybe I could short a little bit of San Francisco and they're saving up for a home and they could buy a little bit of San Francisco. I would love to see this go there. That's absolutely where this is in, intended to, to land. That's great. So yeah, so Schiller's company at the time was Macro Markets, and they they mm -hmm. created these derivatives, and ultimately they were exchange traded derivatives, and you could buy up housing and down housing. And what was fascinating at the time, here's my first Bob Schiller story. So sure. so it was fascinating at the time. We had just started Altos Research, and we could see that because the case Schiller index is lagging, it's and and the way that Altos does the data, as you know, is like we're tracking right now. Right. And you can see the house is listed now and it's going to get an offer next month. And then it closes the month after that. And then the Schillers starts using that data one, two, three months later. So six months down the road, you can see it. And so we could see 
when the Schiller down market funds were were mispriced. Sure. And and so, you know, I didn't have any money because I just started my company, but like I I was like going, hey, let, right. you know, buy this one. Hey, you know, and of course I also didn't have any confidence because you know, who knew like I was new with our data to really know what was going to go on. And I've proven over and over again that I am not a trader. So I, <laughs> like, well, that said, I think it highlights exactly what was the challenge there is, you know, I think Schiller was hoping people like you would do that research because what he was really trying to do is make people forget about the index and just have two-way flow, right? Buyers and sellers. I think the challenge is, is that even if you wanted to put that trade on, yeah, the, the market was very thin and very wide. And I think the reason for that is, is that, you know, I used to be at Bocage, we were, we were commodity investors. We did a lot of futures trading. And like, if I am a market maker for, you know, West Texas crude oil, like I can lay and, and somebody goes and buys a bunch of futures off of me. So I'm now short this oil. I can go like buy physical barrels of oil very, very quickly and, and kind of get myself flat. Like, a market maker on the Case Shiller San Francisco index is not going to get short this contract and go buy a bunch of San Francisco houses, right? Like right. there's just no way for them to hedge the risk, so it just became somewhat problematic. And so that's where where the the Resi shares model comes in because you're, that's actually what you're doing. Yeah, well, well, it's 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 more direct. I always felt the solution for this was equity, just giving, finding a way to put home equity into the hands of lots of market participants and, and do so in a way that is kind of fungible and understandable. Okay. And again, you know, there's folks out there, you look at Roofstock One, for example, if you look at some of the, kind of some of these blockchain ideas, there's folks who are trying to do that at the house by house le level. And, and we're just thinking about it differently. We're thinking about it in terms of regions, as you said. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I like the regional approach because, you know, we can see very obvious trends. We can see, you know, we can see current migration trends. But we could also potentially place bets on climate trends. Like there are there are longer term risks that are, you know, really interesting. Like, is Phoenix a place that can continue its growth? And if you have a view on that, like could I could I here's a question for you. View? Here's a question for you. I think about this all the time. And Phoenix, from what I understand, I'm not a Phoenix expert, but I believe actually that they have a deceptively deep aquifer there. Salt Lake City is the one you got to worry about with water. That's like something I read on the internet. I could be totally wrong, but I, I yeah. believe that's what I heard somewhere. Fair but, but let's say, let's take Phoenix. Let's assume Phoenix is going to run out of water. Is that bearish or is that bullish? Oh, right? because I don't know. Yeah. Because maybe like the people who were there, Katrina happens. Mm -hmm. What do we do? Do we move the people or rebuild in the bowl? We rebuild in the bowl. Like once a city exists and it has a culture and it has like people who have family ties to it, it takes a lot to kind of make that city go away. So if Phoenix runs out of water, maybe that just means they stop building in Phoenix and prices go up. I don't know. Yeah, could be. That's fascinating. Again, like, like not, not a strongly held view. I just, I asked this question to myself. Like, I'm not sure actually what the climate trend change, climate change trade is right now. Fair enough. But it would be nice to have a vehicle where you could express that view sure. if sure. you had one. Correct. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay, so so Resi Shares is is buying properties in order to be able to participate in the equity in those regions for investors. Is that 
the right yes. way to look at it? In the long run. In the short run, we're just like every other group. We're trying to make money for private equity. Got it. We're, we're, we're bad guys in the short term, but we'd like to be good guys in the long term. Is kind of what I think. <laughs> but, okay. but look, I, I, I think that caricature, all jokes aside, is, is unfair. I think I really do believe very much in this idea that the more seamless we make it to move between buying and renting, that that is kind of good for the world. And I actually think that if you look at these private equity firms that led with their chin in 2010, when we had the opposite problem, they were able to keep a lot of people in their homes that otherwise would have been foreclosed upon and evicted. Oh yeah. And it's, you know, when, when you're a fund going in to Vegas and Phoenix in 2010, yeah. you're taking real risk with a real view and it's easy now, 12 years later to, to, you know, villainize yeah. Th those guys to say, oh, because look at all the money, money you made. Right, exactly. Right. But at that time, they bought houses from people who needed their houses bought. And, right. and like, so it's- And they it, had it, financial yeah. incentive to keep those people in their homes. You know, as renters, I get it. Like there's there's a cost for liquidity, but right. you know, it, it prevented a lot of disruption. And now if you look at like what's happening in the build to rent world and everything else, like these people are sparking supply. And what we're short of is supply. So like, at the end of the day, I, I do think a lot of these guys, and, and obviously I'm biased because I've been working with them for the past five years. So these are my customers, my friends, and everyone else. But like, I, I really do think in many cases it is an undeserved bad rep because the, these folks are providing housing for people. Like, <laughs> that's yeah. it. But all that said, I think it's worth mentioning that where we are applying our talents right now is not necessarily to the market structure side of this business. It's to be finding houses and growing areas and operating them very well. Yeah. So, so you have an operations group. Are you doing the operations? We are quarterbacking the operations. We, the way I like to think about it is at this point, we are neither raising money nor hammering nails. We're kind of an intelligence layer in between those two functions. Okay. So obviously that is very heavy on the acquisition side, because that's where, you know, as you know, it's, you make money on the buy, right? Yeah. So, so our, our goal is to help folks make money on the buy, but also you make money on the rehab and you make money on the lease. And we, we do have kind of an in-house, very talented kind of head of field operations who coordinates all of that construction, builds the design spec, everything else. And we have similarly, we, you know, we underwrite all the rents. So when the leasing agents who are not employees of ours go out and, and get these things leased up, they are doing so under our, our, our instructions. That's great. So how far along are you? We started launching the company during the biggest boom ever. So, so well, it's funny. We launched the company in July of 2020, right? Mid-July of 2020. And the idea was, you know, how am I ever going to get anybody to trust me on real estate calls when I made this one? The idea was, oh, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. It's a great time to buy real estate, so I should start this business now. Um, <laughs> that did not work out uh, quite the way we thought it would. Um, but here we are. By that point, it was too late to turn back. So yeah, we certainly didn't see that boom coming we saw we saw a boom coming over the next five to ten years because we you know like everybody else noticed that you had this short supply i think our somewhat out of consensus view for years has been which has become consensus now is that you know millennials whom 10 years ago everyone said we're going to raise their children in cities because they were just generationally different than anybody who preceded them well you know i, I think folks were just looking with 2020 hindsight and when, when those millennials were 32 instead of 22, they wanted to move to the suburbs just like their parents did. So, so we, we absolutely were built up on, on real estate, but, but in the short term, we didn't realize it was going to happen so quickly. So are you, so you were bullish, you started the company, you're like, next five, 10 years is, is a bull market for real estate. We have the demographic tailwinds. 
Mm -hmm. uh, we have we have structural shortage in supply. Mm -hmm. The market's changed a lot. Do you still hold that view? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely still hold that view. It's just playing out very quickly because I think that that's no longer an out of consensus view by capital, right? And and I right. think that this is what's interesting about residential real estate is it's you know no matter how much you hear about private equity piling in, this is still a market that is dominated by by retail owner occupants who are not you know obviously they want a good deal. No one wants to overpay for something, but at the end of the day, they're buying a house to live in that house. Um, right. Or, or buying that house for as, as I have one to one or two investment properties, like yeah. it's like 90% of the investor properties are owned by individuals with, with one to four homes. Yeah, no, that, that's right. And, and, and I haven't seen this, the updated stats like the last stats I saw were from 2017 to 2018, but it, it's, it, I trust your, your numbers are accurate. Um, yeah. So I guess the point is, is that once, once that becomes the consensus view of big money, it's also kind of necessarily becomes the, 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 that view gets incorporated into mom and pop as well, because they are now competing with that big money to buy houses. So I guess my view is that a lot of that demand got pulled forward, but the flip side is, is that inventory and supply were so tight that the pulling forward of demand does not necessarily make the future less bright by any meaningful amount. I was actually having this conversation with a buddy of mine this morning. You know, he was talking about the way that housing prices went berserk in like the Lake Tahoe area with everybody going to remote work from the Bay Area. And he said, oh, that's going to come crashing down. In the next 12 months, it's going to be back to exactly where it was. I said, you know, I just am not sure about that because it went up a lot, but it did so on a volume of maybe what, a thousand homes, 2000 homes. It's not like the whole housing stock is turning over. So it, it, this is just not a market that's at all like the typical financial market that's going to have these these kind of massive fluctuations. I think this absolutely could just be a reset. Um, and I think it's just a function of policy and it's a function of, you know, much larger questions than just, oh, it was up, now it's going down. Okay, so so it could be a reset. I, couple, I have a couple of questions on your view there. Like, what's that reset look like? And in a world where we shift from infinitely free money to not infinitely free money, how does that change? How does that change our dynamic here? Yeah. So first of all, I'm going to give a disclaimer here. The macro keeps us up at night. We spend a lot of time looking at it, but it's not what we do. I would not claim to okay. have any edge in predicting the macro better than anybody else. At the end of the day, our goal is to find the neighborhoods that are outperforming relative to their peer neighborhoods and find the assets within those neighborhoods that are you know, kind of operationally the right assets. Okay. So, so and, and the the last thing I'd say on that is if I really had a great macro call, I'd be trading treasuries instead of houses. They're a lot more liquid. I'd make a lot more I money. say the same thing. If yeah. I knew where interest rates were going, I wouldn't be in the real estate data business. I'd be in the interest rate business. Exactly. So, yeah. so, so, so with that caveat, this is just my view and not the view of ResiShare. Look, I think what we see day to day is that the homes that are quite clearly the most supply and demand imbalance, which are the ones that we and many of our peers are, are aiming for, it hasn't slowed down one iota, not a bit. It is exactly the same market we were in, you know, last August. Interesting. Uh, okay. Which is which is interesting. And I think if you were to take a look at your data, and I know this because I use your data, and cut it by that buy box, you would see the exact same thing in terms of days on market, you know, sale list and all that good stuff. I think obviously 
the data shows that home sales are slowing, which is what you'd expect here. But I think if you looked at what happened in 2008 and where the pain was concentrated most acutely, it was concentrated in terms of price reductions. It was concentrated most acutely where the houses had the most leverage against them and kind of the, the weakest credit attached to those mortgages by a lot. Like you had those kind of blighted, heavily foreclosed neighborhoods. If you looked at the areas of the country that at the time were kind of cashed up, if you looked at like the, you know, the high-end condos in San Francisco and New York, right? Um, where people tended to put down the full 20%, where people still had good jobs, actual prices didn't dip very much. Now, if you had wanted to get rid of that condo at the lows of the market and you had no more than 60 days to dump it, you were going to get a bad price. But the median prices didn't dip that much because most folks just wrote it out because they could. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is people are coming into this, consumer balance sheets are so cashed up. Equity is so high that I think what you're going to see is that phenomenon applied to the whole country. You don't necessarily see prices go down. You just see liquidity become somewhat challenging. Right. Okay. That's that's a really, really great... Uh... So if you got to sell, it, it becomes, it, it, it's like, if you're under pressure to sell, that's, that's when you, you take your haircut. That's a really interesting view. And I, you know, we talk a lot about price reductions and we've been talking a lot about price reductions recently and watching, you know, price reductions start climbing nationally and they've been ultra, ultra few price reductions. And now we're, we're up rapidly approaching normal conditions. Mm -hmm. And in that, in the bubble burst in that 2009 timeframe, we could watch the price reductions, like normal price reductions nationally might be like a third of the homes take a price cut before they mm -hmm. sell. Mm -hmm. And we could watch if you do like a heat map on, on the Bay area, you could look at like close in like Palo Alto had, you know, 20% price reductions. And then one ring out was about 25%. And then another ring out there was about 35. And then you got out to the, the like hour long, hour and a half long commutes. And all of a sudden it's like 50% of the market yep. taking price cuts. Like you could see exactly where it was, where they were leveraged up and where the liquidity challenges were happening because it was radiating out from the center. And so that, that goes to your, like, which, mar which neighborhoods are going to outperform. And I think you're going to see that. And this is obviously self-serving, but I do think that like neighborhood alpha is important here. I like uh, it. Because, you know, I've been relatively bearish on the Bay Area and my neighborhood in particular for, you know, five years now, just because it, it certainly ever since the, the, the 2017 tax bill came in, I thought that that was obviously going to cause out-migration and, and prices to go down. What's funny is you saw the out-migration, but prices have accelerated higher. And it's the same kind of thing. It's, if somebody in my neighborhood is going to is going to sell their house to kind of monetize this huge rip that you've had, inherently they have to buy something else or rent something else. Like if 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 you're making a purely financial trade, I guess I could sell my house and lease it back. That's pretty bold. Most yeah. folks aren't going to do that. Yeah. So then if I'm selling my house, it's like I got to move somewhere. So I, the only thing that I think causes the mass wholesale like dumping of houses is true financial distress where people have to yeah yeah exactly and uh, then the question is like do we get in an economic scenario where where we have true financial distress and that's above my pay grade whether that's coming or not 
Oh, look, you're seeing it. You're definitely seeing financial distress, but but it, it's a question of you know relative versus kind of absolute. Like relative financial distress is, you know, I, I was a Bitcoin millionaire, good for me, and now I'm not, bad for me. Absolute financial distress is like you know, which of my family vacations, which of my kids' sports, whatever, which which of these important lifestyle things to me do I have to get rid of to eat, right? Yeah. Like we're not anywhere close to there yet. Right. At least amongst homeowners, we are. I don't, I don't want to minimize the, tr- the challenges folks are going through at, at other ends of the, the pay scale when inflation is what it is. But certainly amongst homeowners right now, for the most part, I don't think you're there yet. Yeah, that's super, super interesting. I love the concept of neighborhood alpha. And, you know, in the in, in like we can really start to see it in these times, like in the boom times, they they're everything was booming. And it, and maybe in these these reset times, we have some that that reset, reset less. Maybe. Sure. What else do you sure. think about reset? What does reset mean to you? I think reset means to me kind of exhaling a little bit and just allowing the market to reorient itself around the physical supply and demand characteristics of that particular neighborhood. But again, I, I just think that what's happening in the macro right now is so big. And so much bigger even than this big market. It's just very difficult for me to get more specific than that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, okay. Like, like I have I have strong opinions weekly held here, right? Like I'm I'm making this these calls, but like if 12 months from now we do have some sort of massive crash, I'm not gonna sit there like terribly shocked. Like I don't think that's gonna happen. Everything I'm looking just because you know, even this market is a discounting mechanism. And I think everybody can see that supply and demand is so favorable in real estate that it, it just should be able to ride this out and continue to go higher. But like, you know, I think deglobalization is a bigger deal than the real estate market. I think what's happened with the Fed is a bigger deal than the real estate market. And these are all things that I don't necessarily have any edge in making the call on. Right, right, right. So deglobalization, but also does the work from home trend, does that impact your view of neighborhood alpha? Absolutely. What do you think about the work from home trend? I will tell you that, you know, look, we started during the pandemic. We don't have any offices right now. Right. We're about to get our first two offices, one in Dallas, one in Oakland. And, you know, I've designed this whole, like, write up this little memo about what that means to go to the office when you work at ResiShares. And let me tell you, it's not everybody shows up five days a week because I would lose half my team. Yeah. Nor should it necessarily be, you know, half my team are programmers and data scientists and they work better alone. They just, they just do. It's, they don't want me bothering them every five minutes because, you know, I'm a chatty guy and I'll walk by their desk. So it's also not necessarily working from home permanently, but it's working from home enough that we have a guy who works out of the Boulder office that lives in Breckenridge because it's nice there and that's fine. It's a two hour drive and whatever, right? You come in when you come in and we have to organize around that. Now, I will be the first to say that if there is a set of established best practices about coming into work, this hybrid work, I don't know it. I think it's still new. I think folks are still figuring it out. I think there are a lot of vested interests, folks who have invested hundreds of millions of dollars into like custom TIs in their office and or own their own building who really want everybody showing up. But I think that like, that's going to be a millstone around their neck and and folks who do figure this out are going to beat them at their game. So I do think the extent to which work from home affects residential real estate and is another tailwind for SFR, I think that's permanent. I think that's absolutely permanent. 
And you view it as a tailwind for SFR in, in that people are going to be able to live further a two hour commute rather than. Absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, the data over the last several years has reflected that, right? Like nothing has ripped faster than the, the quality housing in a good school district 45 minutes plus away from the city center. And like it's, it's happening everywhere. It's not, it's not specific to San Francisco. It's happening in every city in the country. Right. Where are you guys buying most right now? Where, where, where do they, can you give us, can you give us any, without okay. giving away the secrets uh, on the neighborhood alpha, what, can you give us some characteristics? You know, I, I can't give you the secrets because, you know, that side of our business is all quantitatively derived. So okay. I, it's, I, that, 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 that's the, the my, again, my opinion, like I said, does not reflect what we're actually necessarily doing. This is, uh, my job is just to pull the business together. And all of these observations just come from having a loud mouth and looking at a lot of data all day. Yeah. But look, I think hey, that's what I do for a living. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, so, so I guess the long and short of it is we are we are long term bullish on SFR. We are opportunistic. And, you know, if, if, if it does slow down for any particular reason, we would certainly be a an opportunistic buyer of the good stuff. The good okay. stuff being defined by you know, a long list of characteristics that may or may not have anything to do with what your average realtor or, 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 or kind of buyer cares about. But I will also say that we have not seen those opportunities yet. Like right now, this market is all systems go miraculously enough because I think every other investor is making the same call we are, which is that you're, there's still more people who want to live in houses, whether they buy or rent, than there are houses for them to live in. That's really, really interesting. And, and I, you know, as living in the data and in my social media world, like I'm, what I publish out is, you know, like we, we can see things slowing, but, and it's hard to, dis, it's hard to have this conversation right now. It is hard because I can see, we can see price reductions increasing rapidly. We can see inventory climbing, inventory year over year gain, but inventory is still less than half of what it was even 2019, like the last year pre-pandemic. And so, so in that sense, it's still nuts we we track what we call immediate sales and these are you know these are houses that get listed and go into contract essentially immediately hours or days and it's been surprising to me that there are still a lot of immediate sales happening 23 percent of the homes listed last week went into contract immediately essentially immediately i mean i think that's exactly the phenomenon that i'm seeing as an operator is you know, it's funny. We are seeing a lot more stuff that's been on the market for 20, 30, 40, 50 days than we, than we used to. Yep. We don't want to buy any of it for the most part. Like for the, for the most part, the stuff that is priced right and is good housing stock. If we get the, if we don't get the offer within a couple of hours, we feel disadvantaged. We don't even get a call back from the listing agent. Yeah. To tell us why we lost. Like, but the, but the stuff that is mispriced or the stuff that is a, a poorly done unpermitted garage conversion or, or something else structurally wrong with it that like the smart kind of buyers don't want to buy yep. that stuff is sitting on the market i think this this idea of buy me a house with a door at any price that's gone that's gone but, but, but you weren't buying that anyway we weren't but but people were i guess but people were. and, that, yeah, yeah, and now they're really not fascinating. yeah but they're still buying stuff that's priced right like this yeah yeah that's fascinating it'll be fascinating to see you know, if over the next six months, if we, or eight months or 10 months, when we roll into a recession, if that changes, does your model change in a recession environment? 
Yes, but again, I can't tell you how. Tell the folks who are smarter than me who kind of okay. figure that out. Uh, you know, our, our models are tested through as many housing cycles as we can go back and see in the data. So we, yep. we've we trained them on 2008. We've trained many of them on the early 90s as well. It's, yeah, the goal is to buy things that have some level of resistance to a turn in the cycle. Yeah, I think the recession is an interesting one. What I'd be looking for in a recession is what happens to rents because rents have not gone up as fast as prices, but they have gone up quite fast. And if you look at 08, rents actually didn't have a single blip, mainly because there was all this new renter demand by everybody that got foreclosed on. Well, this time around, if you don't have those foreclosures, which I don't think you will have, people just have less money. Does that slow down rent growth? Almost impossible to prove the counterfactual because rent growth, I think, has rent has so much to grow that even if it just if it grows at 5% instead of 8, why did that happen? That's still quite good, right? So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and yeah. rent's certainly still su- super strong right now. So, investors have no, have no incentive to unload their properties. They're locked Correct. into those super low mortgage and, and rents are high and climbing. So, we certainly haven't seen any pressure on that side yet. Yeah. I can exactly. imagine a world where as as money is more expensive than the next deal that I might buy doesn't pencil out. Therefore, like we, there's either less demand there or there is more supply that, that is like a property that might've got converted into a rental now. Yeah, it, it, that'll be another interesting one again, because the marginal buyers here are typically people, not, not investors. Like if this were the commercial space, the market should be relatively efficient between interest rates and cap rates, right? Like you're not going to buy a two cap and finance it with 6% money unless you have a very strong view of appreciation and rent growth. In housing, we've never been through a cycle now where there are investors kind of very active in certain segments of the market. So I think it'd be very interesting to see what happens here. Like if interest rates keep going up, do cap rates eventually start to widen? We haven't seen any evidence of it yet, because again, I think people are bullish, rightfully so. They're looking at the same data we are. But it would tell you if that were to happen, that certain segments of this market are starting to become more commercial markets. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Do you do you, you have a pretty bullish view of of the market? So it sounds like pretty bullish view of, of the market in terms of appreciation, so the structural challenges, the the low supply, high demographic demand. Mm-hmm. So do you see risks that we're not talking about? Definitely see risks. Let me try to think if we're not talking about it. Yeah, I think the biggest risk, the biggest risk I have in my mind, I think is bigger than the real estate market. I think all of the risks that keep me up at night are the ones that the unknown unknowns, the things that I couldn't possibly have a, an enlightened view upon. Deglobalization being chief among them. I, I were, and, and that is a bigger problem than just real estate. Like we have been deglobalizing rapidly there was already kind of, I think, global sentiment was turning against the Washington consensus, so to speak, for years. And then COVID just accelerated that. And I don't know when that stops and turns around. If it takes 30 years, like it took 30 years to go the other way, that would be terrible. Right? It's Meaning funny because- terrible because deglobalization then implies less efficiency and higher higher things like inflation, structural inflation. Uh, structurally, interest rates have to rise to match that. So have to rise. It, there's just less capital in the world. Yeah. 
And not to say that the way that we've operated and, and kind of the capitalism that we've chosen hasn't had its excesses, but like, there's a lot of baby with the bathwater fears that I have here. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know that everybody sees the world the way that you and I do on this. And like, they see inflation, they say, oh, it's Joe Biden's fault. It's like, no, this is, this is a bigger deal than just the president or something. This is, so, so, so I, I, the idea that humanity may have to go through that valley of pain to understand that we should not be turning our back on everything we've built over the past 70 years. I recognize this is out of scope of this conversation, but like, if something happens like that, then there's just less capital available in the world and things just stop growing forever, or not forever, but for, 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 well, then my call on whether this zip code versus that zip code, it, it just becomes less relevant, right? So, yeah, 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 exactly. You know, I, I watched, um talk recently about you know the his view of the future and and you know most of humanity is really unable to head and and in his view you know the, yeah that's right that's exactly right but he was you know his view is like you know the safest place for your money is in your mattress right now <laughs> you know like and yeah. and he's he's black swan you know like yeah. so that, that gives me that gives me real like you know, pause to think of, you know, if we're like shifting and, and, you know, you know, a lot of the innovation in housing, primarily the biggest innovation I think in, in us real estate market in, in the last decade has been open door and the, the financial ability to like, we'll go buy your house quickly because we have infinitely free money. And what happens when money isn't infinitely free like what happens to those those big innovations and how slow do things get? Like I, I don't have an ability to see, you know, the the real implications of that. But th those are interesting challenges. And and to ca to characterize it as deglobalization, I think is pretty powerful. It's like it's like we had this 30, 40 year trend of globalization with these masses and, and benefits. And then with some of the downsides that we're now trying to correct for and, and, and like what happens to all those benefits. Yeah. What happened? Everybody who decried how Walmart came into their town and messed up main street, you know, now they're paying main street prices and they're seeing how much they like that. Like, let's not forget that a working class family could walk into Walmart and get everything they needed for a small percentage of their paycheck. You take that yeah. away and suddenly it's like, you sure this is what you got guys. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you think in, in terms of inflation? You know, obviously inflation is the biggest economic story of the day. Does that, does that change your view? Uh, for, so, or, or for example, you know, for me a year ago, and even when I was doing some of these podcast interviews earlier this year, you know, we were still talking like some of my guests were still talking like probably transient inflation, mm. gonna, you know, probably like it's supply chain oriented and therefore, you know, not super bearish on implications of that every, you know, it seems like we're still accelerating inflation. And what does that mean to you? So I have kind of a weird, maybe overdetermined view of inflation that I'm sure a real economist can scoff at, but this is just my way of digesting it and kind of grokking what it means. I've always felt that inflation to the extent that it matters economically is just another word for like scarcity. And what I mean by that is when the stuff people buy a lot of is relatively scarce. Uh, the price of those things goes up and you, ha you have a certain amount of inflation. So when I, you know, 
10 years ago when CPI was at like, you know, half a percent or something. No, there's no inflation. We got we to jack up inflation. And I was living in the Bay Area saying, you know, I recognize that the San Francisco CPI is technically whatever percent because the way you define that basket has in it like computer chips or cars or other things that like I actually don't buy. But my rent is certainly inflating a lot faster than that. The cost of, you know, a drink at the local bar where all the other kind of finance and tech people hang out, that's, that's gone up quite a bit. So I, in my, my personal CPI basket was experiencing a tremendous amount of inflation. And now I almost feel like that's just kind of expanded everywhere else now. So all inflation is transitory. And, it, and it's specifically transitory. It, it's going to end at some point. It's going to shift to a different sector at some point. You know, even in the middle part of the last decade, when, uh, when, when the price of stocks was going up, because the earnings multiples were going up, it's like, well, investment opportunities are scarce. That's where you're seeing inflation. That's where that monetary, you know, picking the Python is moving. So to kind of answer your question a bit more specifically, right now, what's scarce is food, energy, and shelter. If we continue to deglobalize, none of those problems are getting solved anytime soon. The only way to really kill inflation, I don't care what the Fed does. Oh, actually, that's not true. There's two ways you kill that inflation. Only one of which the Fed has control over. Right. More supply or less demand. The Fed can kill demand. Raising interest rates to 10% cause a recession. Inflation will go down because no one will be buying anything because no one will have any money. But to, re- but to really give people the, pros- the feeling of prosperity that they want, what you need to do is increase supply. Which means, you know, more oil, more renewables, more food grown domestically, or more relationships with partners who are willing to trade freely with us to provide us with those things. And same with the precursors to housing, including labor, which means we have to open up immigration, which nobody seems to be excited about anymore. So, like, the structural things that are making inflation go up are outside of the Fed's control. It's geopolitical or domestic political. Really neat. That's, I love the big thinking. It's, it's really fun to, it's, it's fun to explore it, right? Because, because we can sometimes be in the, you know, in the neighborhood and the dynamics of the, of the, the, the local dynamics of housing, but, but there's some really big economic shifts happening in the world. And, and like, th- those are, those are coming to play and, and they may be changing fundamental assumptions that we've grown up on. You know, yeah. I've done Altos research in, you know, the last 17, 16 years. And, and like, there've been some big changes in there, but, but the fundamental assumptions have been basically the same throughout there. The last time we had this kind of inflation, I was in diapers. Like, this is really something that, and I'm older than most people in the, in, in the workforce, right? So like, this is really, your, your point on challenging fundamental assumptions is, is very clear. Yeah. A lot of people just don't know what this feels like. Yeah. I've certainly never run a company in an inflationary environment. Yeah, exactly. Never raised. We have we are, we've never raised prices on our customers. Like, like that's an interesting thing. Okay, let's do. We're we're coming up to the top of the hour. Let's let's. Where, where do people find more about Resi Shares? Are you particular? Is is there something you want them to? Are you are you writing stuff? I love the stuff that you write. You do you, you do investor updates and stuff, and it's super fun. Where should people? Yeah. Where should people find you? So, you know, we, we're not marketing right now. Like, like I said, we kind of have our capital partners and, and we're focused on execution, but we intend to broaden our, the scope of our offering very, very broadly at some point over the next decade. <laughs> very open. So I would say, I, you know, by all means, check us out if you're curious. We're not going to find all that much, um, but, but watch this space because we hope to become a household name and you can go to e-shares.com 
and uh, navigate over to Resi Rappenstein. And I promise at some point you'll actually get an email or two, but but not 200. Right. Resi is R-E-S-I, resi-shares.com. And then you can you can jump on the newsletter there. Exactly. Exactly. That's terrific. Yeah, I love the newsletter. I, lo- I love it. Uh, I'm glad. You- thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Mike Green, thank you so much for joining us on the Top of Mind podcast today. I really appreciate your thoughts. I love getting the different perspectives. I love the concepts of, of neighborhood alpha. I, I love thinking about, you know, 2008 as, as, a, as a leverage crash, and we are significantly under leveraged right now. I'd like the, I'd, I'd love the insights about, you know, where the homes that are sitting around on the market now are already ones you, you know you don't want. And, and so the, the ones like, like the, the competition is staying for the good properties. And it's going to be really fascinating to see over the next six months, 12 months, if, if that continues, right? If that trend, if, if, if like, you know, the, the macro trends, the demographic trends and the, and the supply trends allow us to essentially stay hotter than you'd expect, you know, in a, in a weakening economy, like does that does that continue to hold up? It could be really fascinating. A good friend of mine lost on a multiple offer scenario yesterday, and you know, meanwhile I'm reporting on price reduction. So, it, like, it's really gonna be really fascinating. We, we get a K-shaped. How do we do it? K-shaped. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Real estate recovery. Exactly. In uh, real estate market, they'll be really really fascinating. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Mike. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is the Top of Mind podcast. I'm Mike Simonson from Altos Research. If you need to learn about the data every week, make sure you follow our YouTube channel. Subscribe at your your all your 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 podcast places for the Top of Mind podcast, and join us again next week. We'll have another Top of Mind. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks very much. Bye. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.